16. The posts beside the line. Now, the posts were to be a hundred yards apart, the length of the road over the hill being five miles, and the length of the level cutting only four and a half miles. How many posts did they save by erecting them on the level? That is a very simple matter of calculation, said Mr. Filkins. Find how many times 100 yards will go in 5 miles, and how many times in 4 and a half miles, then deduct one from the other, and you have the number of posts saved by the shorter route. Quite right, confirmed Mr. Augood. Nothing could be easier, that is just what the post office people said, replied George, but it is quite wrong. If you look at this sketch that I have just made, you will see that there is no difference whatever. If the posts are a hundred yards apart, just the same number will be required on the level as over the surface of the hill. Surely you must be wrong, George, said Mrs. Augood. For if the posts are a hundred yards apart and it is half a mile farther over the hill, you have to put up posts on that extra half mile. Look at the diagram, Mother. You will see that the distance from post to post is not the distance from base to base measured along the ground. I am just the same distance from you if I stand on the spot on the carpet or stand immediately above it on the chair. But Mrs. Augood was not convinced. Mr. Smoothly, the curate, at the end of the table, said at this point that he had a little question to ask. Suppose the earth were a perfect sphere with a smooth surface, and a girdle of steel were placed round the equator so that it touched at every point. I'll put a girdle round about the earth in forty minutes, muttered George, quoting the words of Puck in a midsummer night's dream. Now, if six yards were added to the length of the girdle, what would then be the distance between the girdle and the earth? Supposing that distance to be equal all round, in such a great length, said Mr. Augood, I do not suppose the distance would be worth mentioning. What do you say, George? asked Mr. Smoothly. Well, Without calculating I should imagine it would be a very minute fraction of an inch. Reginald and Mr. Filkins were of the same opinion. I think it will surprise you all, said the curate, to learn that those extra six yards would make the distance from the earth all round the girdle very nearly a yard. Very nearly a yard, everybody exclaimed, with astonishment, but Mr. Smoothly was quite correct. The increase is independent of the original length of the girdle which may be round the earth or round in orange, in any case the additional six yards will give a distance of nearly a yard all round. This is apt to surprise the non-mathematical mind. Did you hear the story of the extraordinary precocity of Mrs. Parkins's baby that died last week? Asked Mrs. Augood. It was only three months old, and lying at the point of death, when the grief-stricken mother asked the doctor if nothing could save it. Absolutely nothing, said the doctor. Then the infant looked up pitifully into its mother's face and said absolutely nothing. Impossible, insisted Mildred, and only three months old. There have been extraordinary cases of infantile precocity, said Mr. Filkins, the truth of which has often been carefully attested. But are you sure this really happened, Mrs. Augood? Positive, replied the lady. But do you really think it astonishing that a child of three months should say absolutely nothing? What would you expect it to say? Speaking of death, said Mr. Smoothly, solemnly, I knew two men, father and son, who died in the same battle during the South African War. They were both named Andrew Johnson and buried side by side, but there was some difficulty in distinguishing them on the headstones. What would you have done? Quite simple, said Mr. Augood. They should have described one as Andrew Johnson, senior, and the other as Andrew Johnson, junior, but I forgot to tell you that the father died first. What difference can that make? 
Well, you see, they wanted to be absolutely exact, and that was the difficulty. But I don't see any difficulty, said Mr. Augood, nor could anybody else. Well, explained Mr. Smoothly, it is like this. If the father died first, the son was then no longer junior. Is that so? To be strictly exact. Yes, that is just what they wanted to be strictly exact. Now, if he was no longer junior, then he did not die junior. Consequently it must be incorrect so to describe him on the headstone. Do you see the point? Here is a rather curious thing, said Mr. Filkins, that I had just remembered. A man wrote to me the other day that he had recently discovered two old coins while digging in his garden. One was dated 51 BC and the other one marked George I. How do I know that he was not writing the truth? Perhaps you know the man to be addicted to a lying, said Reginald. But that would be no proof that he was not telling the truth in this instance. Perhaps, suggested Mildred. You know that there were no coins made at those dates. On the contrary, they were made at both periods. Were they silver or copper coins? Asked Willie. My friend did not state. And I really cannot see. Willie, that it makes any difference. I see it. Shouted Reginald. The letters BC would never be used on a coin made before the birth of Christ. They never anticipated the event in that way. The letters were only adopted later to denote dates previous to those which we call AD. That is very good but I cannot see why the other statement could not be correct. Reginald is quite right, said Mr. Filkins, about the first coin. The second one could not exist, because the first George would never be described in his lifetime as George I. Why not? asked Mrs. Augood. He was George I, yes, but they would not know it until there was a George I. I. Then there was no George I. I. Until George I. 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 came to be thrown. That does not follow. The second George becomes George I. I. On account of their having been a George I, then the first George was George I on account of their having been no king of that name before him. Don't you see? Mother, said George Augood, we did not call Queen Victoria Victoria I, but if there is ever a Victoria I, I, then she will be known that way. But there have been several Georges, and therefore he was George I there haven't been several Victorias, so the two cases are not similar. They gave up the attempt to convince Mrs. Augood, but the reader will. Of course, see the point clearly. Here is a question, said Mildred Augood, that I should like some of you to settle for me. I am accustomed to buy from our greengrocer bundles of asparagus, each 12 inches in circumference. I always put a tape measure round them to make sure I am getting the full quantity. The other day the man had no large bundles in stock, but handed me instead two small ones, each 6 inches in circumference. That is the same thing, I said, and, of course, the price will be the same, but he insisted that the two bundles together contained more than the large one, and charged me a few pence extra. Now, what I want to know island which of us was correct. Would the two small bundles contain the same quantity as the large one, or would they contain more? That is the ancient puzzle, said Reginald, laughing, of the sack of corn that Sempronis borrowed from Caius, which your greengrocer, perhaps, had been reading about somewhere. He caught you beautifully. Then they were equal. On the contrary, you were both wrong, and you were badly cheated. You only got half the quantity that would have been contained in a large bundle, and therefore ought to have been charged half the original price, instead of more. Yes, it was a bad swindle. Undoubtedly, a circle with a circumference half that of another must have its area a quarter that of the other. Therefore the two small bundles contained together only half as much asparagus as a large one. Mr. Filkins, can you answer this? Asked Willie. 
There is a man in the next village who eats two eggs for breakfast every morning. Nothing very extraordinary in that. George broke in, if you told us that the two eggs ate the man it would be interesting. Don't interrupt the boy. George, said his mother. Well, Willie continued, this man neither buys, borrows, barters, begs, steals, nor finds the eggs. He doesn't keep hens, and the eggs are not given to him. How does he get the eggs? Does he take them in exchange for something else? Asked Mildred. That would be bartering them. Willie replied, perhaps some friend sends them to him. Suggested Mrs. Augood. I said that they were not given to him. I know, said George, with confidence. A strange hen comes into his place and lays them. But that would be finding them, wouldn't it? Does he hire them? Asked Reginald. If so, he could not return them after they were eaten. So that would be stealing them. Perhaps it is a pun on the word lay. Mr. Filkins said. Does he lay them on the table? He would have to get them first, wouldn't he? The question was. How does he get them? Give it up, said everybody. Then little Willie crept round to the protection of his mother, for George was apt to be rough on such occasions. The man keeps ducks, he cried, and his servant collects the eggs every morning. But you said he doesn't keep birds, George protested. I didn't, did I Mr. Filkins? I said he doesn't keep hens, but he finds them, said Reginald. No, I said his servant finds them. Well, then... Mildred interposed, his servant gives them to him, you cannot give a man his own property, can you? All agreed that Willie's answer was quite satisfactory, then Uncle John produced a little fallacy that brought the proceedings to a close, as the newspapers say, 413, a chessboard fallacy, here is a diagram of a chessboard, he said, you see there are 64 squares 8 by 8, now I draw a straight line from the top left hand corner where the first and second squares meet, to the bottom right-hand corner. I cut along this line with the scissors, slide up the piece that I had marked P and then clip off the little corner C by a cut along the first upright line. This little piece will exactly fit into its place at the top. And we now have an oblong with seven squares on one side and nine squares on the other. There are, therefore, now only 63 squares, because seven multiplied by nine makes 63. Where on earth does that lost square go to? I have tried over and over again to catch the little beggar, but he always eludes me. For the life of me I cannot discover where he hides himself. It seems to be like the other old chessboard fallacy, and perhaps the explanation is the same, said Reginald, that the pieces do not exactly fit, but they do fit, said Uncle John. Try it, and you will see. Later in the evening Reginald and George were seen in a corner with their heads together trying to catch that elusive little square, and it is only fair to a record that before they retired for the night they succeeded in securing their prey, though some others of the company failed to see it when captured. Can the reader solve the little mystery? And classified problems, a snapper up of considered trifles, Winter's Tale, if, two, 414, who was first, Anderson, Biggs, and Carpenter were staying together at a place by the seaside. One day they went out in a boat and were a mile at sea when a rifle was fired on shore in their direction. Why or by whom the shot was fired fortunately does not concern us, as no information on these points is obtainable. But from the facts I picked up we can get material for a curious little puzzle for the novice. It seems that Anderson only heard the report of the gun, Biggs only saw the smoke, and Carpenter merely saw the bullet strike the water near them. Now, the question arises, 
Which of them first knew of the discharge of the rifle? 415. A wonderful village. There is a certain village in Japan, situated in a very low valley, and yet the sun is nearer to the inhabitants every noon, by 3.000 miles and upwards, than when he either rises or sets to these people. In what part of the country is the village situated? 416. A calendar puzzle. If the end of the world should come on the first day of a new century, can you say what are the chances that it will happen on a Sunday? 417. The tiring irons. The illustration represents one of the most ancient of all mechanical puzzles. Its origin is unknown. Cardin, the mathematician, wrote about it in 1550, and Wallace in 1693, while it is said still to be found in obscure English villages sometimes deposited in strange places, such as a church belfry, made of iron, and appropriately called, tiring irons, and to be used by the Norwegians today as a lot for boxes and bags. In the toy shops it is sometimes called the Chinese rings, though there seems to be no authority for the description, and it more frequently goes by the unsatisfactory name of the puzzling rings. The French call it Bagadadier. The puzzle will be seen to consist of a simple loop of wire fixed in a handle to be held in the left hand, and a certain number of rings secured by wires which pass through holes in the bar and are kept there by their blinded ends. The wires work freely in the bar, but cannot come apart from it nor can the wires be removed from the rings. The general puzzle is to detach the loop completely from all the rings, and then to put them all on again. Now, it will be seen at a glance that the first ring to the right can be taken off at any time by sliding it over the end and dropping it through the loop, or it may be put on by reversing the operation. With this exception, the only ring that can ever be removed is the one that happens to be a contiguous second on the loop at the right-hand end. Thus, with all the rings on, the second can be dropped at once, with the first ring down. You cannot drop the second, but may remove the third, with the first three rings down. You cannot drop the fourth, but may remove the fifth, and so on. It will be found that the first and second rings can be dropped together or put on together, but to prevent confusion we will throughout disallow this exceptional double move, and say that only one ring may be put on or removed at a time. We can thus take off one ring in one move, two rings in two moves, three rings in five moves, four rings in ten moves, five rings in twenty-one moves, and if we keep on doubling and adding one where the number of rings is odd we may easily ascertain the number of moves for completely removing any number of rings. To get off all the seven rings requires eighty-five moves. Let us look at the five moves made in removing the first three rings. The circles above the line standing for rings on the loop and those under four rings off the loop. Drop the first ring, drop the third, put up the first, drop the second, and drop the first five moves. As shown clearly in the diagrams, the dark circles show at each stage, from the starting position to the finish, which rings it is possible to drop. After move two it will be noticed that no ring can be dropped until one has been put on, because the first and second rings from the right now on the loop are not together. After the fifth move, if we wish to remove all seven rings we must now drop the fifth but before we can then remove the fourth it is necessary to put on the first three and remove the first two. We shall then have seven, six, four, three on the loop, and may therefore drop the fourth. When we have put on two and one and remove three, two, one, we may drop the seventh ring. The next operation then will be to get six, five, four, three, two, one on the loop and remove four, three, two, one. When six will come off, then get 5, 4, 3, 2, 1 on the loop, and remove 3, 
2, 1, when 5 will come off, then get 4, 3, 2, 1 on the loop and remove 2, 1, when 4 will come off, then get 3, 2, 1 on the loop and remove 1, when 3 will come off, then get 2, 1 on the loop, when 2 will come off, and 1 will fall through on the 85th move, leaving the loop quite free. The reader should now be able to understand the puzzle, whether or not he has it in his hand in a practical form. Illustration. The particular problem I propose is simply this. Suppose there are altogether 14 rings on the tiring irons, and we proceed to take them all off in the correct way so as not to waste any moves. What will be the position of the rings after the 9.9909DH move has been made? 418. Such a getting upstairs. In a suburban villa there is a small staircase with eight steps. Not counting the landing. The little puzzle with which Tommy Smart perplexed his family is this. You are required to start from the bottom and land twice on the floor above stopping there at the finish. Having returned once to the ground floor. But you must be careful to use every tread the same number of times. In how few steps can you make the ascent? It seems a very simple matter but it is more than likely that at your first attempt you will make a great many more steps than are necessary. Of course you must not go more than one riser at a time. Tommy knows the truth, and has shown it to his father, who professes to have a contempt for such things, but when the children are in bed the pater will often take friends out into the hall and enjoy a good laugh at their bewilderment, and yet it is also very simple when you know how it is done. 419. The Five Pennies. Here is a really hard puzzle and yet its conditions are so absurdly simple. Every reader knows how to place four pennies so that they are equidistant from each other. All you have to do is to arrange three of them flat on the table so that they touch one another in the form of a triangle, and lay the fourth penny on top in the center. Then, as every penny touches every other penny, they are all at equal distances from one another. Now try to do the same thing with five pennies place them so that every penny shall touch every other penny and you will find it a different matter altogether. 420. The Industrious Bookworm. Our friend Professor Rackbrain is seen in the illustration to be propounding another of his little posers. He is explaining that since he last had occasion to take down those three volumes of a learned book from their place on his shelves a bookworm has actually bored a hole straight through from the first page to the last. He says that the leaves are together three inches thick in each volume, and that every cover is exactly one-eighth of an inch thick, and he asks how long a tunnel had the industrious worm to bore in preparing his new tube railway. Can you tell him? 421. A Chain Puzzle. This is a puzzle based on a pretty little idea first dealt with by the late Mr. Sam Lloyd. A man had nine pieces of chain, as shown in the illustration. He wanted to join these fifty links into one endless chain. It will cost a penny to open any link and tuppence to weld a link together again. But he could buy a new endless chain of the same character and quality for 2s. To d. What was the cheapest course for him to adopt? Unless the reader is cunning he may find himself a good way out in his answer. 422. The Sabbath Puzzle. I have come across the following little poser in an old book. I wonder how many readers will see the author's intended solution to the riddle. Christians the week's first day for Sabbath hold, the Jews the seventh, as they did of old, the Turks the sixth, as we have oft been told, how can these three, in the same place and day, have each his own true Sabbath, tell, I pray, 423, the ruby brooch, the annals of Scotland Yard contain some remarkable cases of jewel robberies, 
but one of the most perplexing was the theft of Lady Littlewood's rubies. There have, of course, been many greater robberies in point of value, but few so artfully conceived. Lady Littlewood, of Romley Manor, had a beautiful but rather eccentric heirloom in the form of a ruby brooch. While staying at her townhouse early in the 80s she took the jewel to a shop in Brompton for some slight repairs. A fine collection of rubies, madam, said the shopkeeper, to whom her ladyship was a stranger. Yes, she replied, but curiously enough I have never actually counted them. My mother once pointed out to me that if you start from the center and count up one line, along the outside and down the next line, there are always eight rubies, so I should always know if a stone were missing. Six months later a brother of Lady Littlewood's, who had returned from his regiment in India, noticed that his sister was wearing the ruby brooch one night at a county ball, and on their return home asked to look at it more closely. He immediately detected the fact that four of the stones were gone. How can that possibly be? said Lady Littlewood. If you count up one line from the center, along the edge, and down the next line, in any direction, there are always eight stones. This was always so and is so now. How, therefore, would it be possible to remove a stone without my detecting it? Nothing could be simpler, replied the brother. I know the brooch well. It originally contained 45 stones, and there are now only 41. Somebody has stolen four rubies, and then reset as small a number of the others as possible in such a way that there shall always be eight in any of the directions you have mentioned. There was not the slightest doubt that the Brompton jeweler was the thief and the matter was placed in the hands of the police, but the man was wanted for other robberies, and had left the neighborhood some time before, to this day he has never been found, the interesting little point that at first baffled the police, and which forms the subject of our puzzle, is this, how were the 45 rubies originally arranged on the brooch, the illustration shows exactly how the 41 were arranged after it came back from the jeweler, but although they count 8 correctly in any of the directions mentioned, there are four stones missing. 424. The dovetailed block. Here is a curious mechanical puzzle that was given to me some years ago. But I cannot say who first invented it. It consists of two solid blocks of wood securely dovetailed together. On the other two vertical sides that are not visible the appearance is precisely the same as on those shown. How were the pieces put together? When I published this little puzzle in a London newspaper I received though they were unsolicited quite a stack of models. In oak. In teak, in mahogany, rosewood, satinwood, elm, and deal, some half a foot in length, and others varying in size right down to a delicate little model about half an inch square. It seemed to create considerable interest. 425. Jack and the Beanstalk. The illustration, by a British artist, is a sketch of Jack climbing the beanstalk. Now, the artist has made a serious blunder in this drawing. Can you find out what it is? 426. The hymnboard poser, the worthy vicar of Chumpley Street Winifred is in great distress. A little church difficulty has arisen that all the combined intelligence of the parish seems unable to surmount. What this difficulty is I will state hereafter, but it may add to the interest of the problem if I first give a short account of the curious position that has been brought about. It all has to do with the church hymnboards, the plates of which have become so damaged that they have ceased to fulfill the purpose for which they were devised. A generous parishioner has promised to pay for a new set of plates at a certain rate of cost, but strange as it may seem, no agreement can be come to as to what that cost should be. The proposed maker of the plates has named a price which the donor declares to be absurd. The good vicar thinks they are both wrong. 
So he asks the schoolmaster to work out the little sum, but this individual declares that he can find no rule bearing on the subject in any of his arithmetic books. An application having been made to the local medical practitioner, as a man of more than average intellect at Chumpley, he has assured the vicar that his practice is so heavy that he has not had time even to look at it, though his assistant whispers that the doctor has been sitting up unusually late for several nights past. Widow Wilson has a smart son, who is reputed to have once won a prize for puzzle solving. He asserts that as he cannot find any solution to the problem it must have something to do with the squaring of the circle, the duplication of the cube, or the trisection of an angle, at any rate. He has never before seen a puzzle on the principle, and he gives it up. This was the state of affairs when the assistant curate who, I should say, had frankly confessed from the first that a profound study of theology had knocked out of his head all the knowledge of mathematics he ever possessed kindly sent me the puzzle. A church has three hymn boards, each to indicate the numbers of five different hymns to be sung at a service. All the boards are in use at the same service. The hymn book contains 700 hymns. A new set of numbers is required, and a kind parishioner offers to present a set painted on metal plates, but stipulates that only the smallest number of plates necessary shall be purchased. The cost of each plate is to be 60, and for the painting of each plate the charges are to be, for one plate, one S dot, for two plates alike, 113 for D, each, for three plates alike, 111 to D, each, and so on the charge being one farthing less per plate for each similarly painted plate. Now, what should be the lowest cost? Readers will note that they are required to use every legitimate and practical method of economy. The illustration will make clear the nature of the three hymn boards and plates. The five hymns are here indicated by means of twelve plates. These plates slide in separately at the back, and in the illustration there is room, of course, for three more plates. 427. Pheasant Shooting a Cockney friend, who is very apt to draw the long bow, and is evidently less of a sportsman than he pretends to be, relates to me the following not very credible yarn, I've just been pheasant shooting with my friend the Duke, we had splendid sport, and I made some wonderful shots, what do you think of this, for instance, perhaps you can twist it into a puzzle, the Duke and I were crossing a field when suddenly 24 pheasants rose on the wing right in front of us, I fired, and two-thirds of them dropped dead at my feet. Then the Duke had a shot at what were left, and brought down three twenty-fourths of them, wounded in the wing. Now, out of those twenty-four birds, how many still remained? It seems a simple enough question, but can the reader give a correct answer? 428. The Gardener and the Cook, a correspondent, signing himself, Simple Simon suggested that I should give a special catch puzzle in the issue of the weekly dispatch for All Fools Day, 1900, so I gave the following, and it caused considerable amusement, for out of a very large body of competitors, many quite expert, not a single person solved it, though it ran for nearly a month, the illustration is a fancy sketch of my correspondent, Simple Simon, in the act of trying to solve the following innocent little arithmetical puzzle. A race between a man and a woman that I happened to witness when All Fool's Day has fixed itself indelibly on my memory. It happened at a country house, where the gardener and the cook decided to run a race to a point 100 feet straight away and return. I found that the gardener ran 3 feet at every bound and the cook only 2 feet, but then she made 3 bounds to his 2. Now, what was the result of the race? A fortnight after publication I added the following note, 
It has been suggested that perhaps there is a catch in the return, but there is not. The race is to a point 100 feet away and home again that island a distance of 200 feet. One correspondent asks whether they take exactly the same time in turning, to which I reply that they do. Another seems to suspect that it is really a conundrum, and that the answer is that the result of the race was a matrimonial tie. But I have no such intention. The puzzle is an arithmetical one, as it purports to be. 429. Placing H.A.L.F.E.N.I.S. Here is an interesting little puzzle suggested to me by Mr. W.T. White. Mark off on a sheet of paper a rectangular space 5 inches by 3 inches, and then find the greatest number of halfpennies that can be placed within the enclosure under the following conditions. A halfpenny is exactly an inch in diameter. Place your first halfpenny where you like. Then place your second coin at exactly the distance of an inch from the first, the third an inch distance from the second, and so on. No halfpenny may touch another halfpenny or cross the boundary. Our illustration will make the matter perfectly clear. Number two coin is an inch from number one, number three an inch from number two, number four an inch from number three, but after number ten is placed we can go no further in this attempt. Yet several more halfpennies might have been gotten. How many can the reader place? 430. Find the man's wife. One summer day in 1903 I was loitering on the Brighton front, watching the people strolling about on the beach, when the friend who was with me suddenly drew my attention to an individual who was standing alone and said, can you point out that man's wife, they are stopping at the same hotel as I am, and the lady is one of those in view, after a few minutes observation, I was successful in indicating the lady correctly, my friend was curious to know by what method of reasoning I had arrived at the result, this was my answer, we may at once exclude that sister of mercy and the girl in the short frock, also the woman selling oranges, it cannot be the lady in widow's weeds, it is not the lady in the bath chair, because she is not staying at your hotel, for I happened to see her come out of a private house this morning assisted by her maid, the two ladies in red breakfasted at my hotel this morning, and as they were not wearing outdoor dress I conclude they are staying there, it therefore rests between the lady in blue and the one with the green parasol, but the left hand that holds the parasol island you see, and loft and bears no wedding ring, consequently I am driven to the conclusion that the lady in blue is the man's wife and you,